Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So it's nice to be with you guys today. And uh, Rich and I just want to thank you again for all of your prayers. We're at 28 weeks and everything is going great. Okay. I don't know if I mentioned last time, we know we're in trouble because they get really active about 3 in the morning. So, But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, dear Lord, we just want to thank you so much just for this morning you've given us. It is such a blessing to have your word open up to us and to sing praises to you. I just pray that you just help us concentrate on you this next hour and that we just bring your message to our hearts and we just live out the gospel in our lives. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Will you please join me in opening up your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to focus on verses 16 to 17 this morning, but we're going to start reading in verse 12, to give us our immediate context. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you continue in the things you learn and become convinced of, known from whom you learn them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation, which through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when they're not endure sound doctrine, but one who have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. John Wycliffe is known as the morning star of the Reformation. And contrary to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, he believed that the word of God was the ultimate authority in all things. He helped translate the Latin Vulgate into English because he strongly believed that the Bible should be the hand of every man and in a language they could understand. As a result of his translation work and his teachings, he was a wanted man, and he lived the life of a fugitive. A good portion of his life was on the run and in hiding, and he eventually died of a stroke. But since he did not die by their hand, his death did not satisfy the Catholic Church, so they dug up his bones and burned them. And if that did not make enough of a statement, They had his ashes scattered in the river Swift. William Tyndale was the first person to translate the Greek text into English. Like Wycliffe, he believed that the Bible should be the hand of every man and in a language they could understand. He had to smuggle his Bibles into England since they were considered to be contraband. The Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of London banned his translation and ordered every copy destroyed. He was eventually arrested and executed for his crime of simply translating the Bible and distributing to the common people. And his death was not a painless one. He was strangled and burned at the stake. But what God meant for evil, God meant for good. His death helped kindle the flame of the Reformation. Obadiah Holmes was a particular Baptist who was whipped 30 times with a three-quarter whip into Massachusetts Bay Colony for his rejection of paedo-baptism and his Baptist beliefs. He chose to obey what the Bible taught about those things instead of the teachings of man. As he laid on the ground bleeding in intense pain, he looked up to the executioner and uttered what is probably the best Baptist insult ever uttered. You struck me as with roses, which in today's vernacular... He could be translated as, you hit like a girl. <laughs> yeah. The whipping severely wounded Holmes, and he almost died. It was reported his skin was so shredded that he couldn't lie down. And keep in mind, even though he was whipped to his back, 
Since it's a whip, it would often come around and take off skin from the sides and his chest. So he spent weeks just sleeping and resting just on his hands and knees. There have been many countless Baptist pastors who we may never know their names that were Calvinists before it was cool to be one, who strongly believed that the Scriptures taught the doctrines of grace and rejected man-made doctrines such as Arminianism. They had their reputations attacked, and they had to pack up their families and move after being chased out of one church after another because they stood firm on the truth that it is God alone who saves. So what do all these men have in common? Each and every one of them knew what they had in the Bible. That it contained the very words of God and they were accountable for all of them. That it was worth devoting all of their time and energy to reading, studying, teaching, and preaching. That it was something that showed them the right way to live and most importantly, it revealed God to them. That it was something that it was something worth dying for. Can that be said of you? Do you believe those things? Or was Charles Spurgeon referring to you when he said, there is not enough dust on some of your Bibles to write the word damnation with your fingers? I pray that he was not talking about you. This morning we're going to examine the hallmark text that talks about the nature of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. And we're going to answer four questions. Who is being equipped? What is equipping him? What is he being equipped for? And finally, why does it matter? First, let's answer the question, who is being equipped? We find our answer in the beginning of verse 17. The man of God. It's so easy when we read that phrase, man of God, to overlook it. But we shouldn't. It has a meaning that's very important to rightly understand in the text and affects how we apply it. The phrase man of God is based on an Old Testament phrase that was only used for God's chosen prophets, such as Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. It was used over 70 times in the Old Testament, including Deuteronomy 33.1, which states, Now this is a blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. It was also used throughout the New Testament. For example, in 1 Timothy 6, verses 11 to 12, the Apostle Paul referred to Timothy as a man of God. But you, O man of God, flee from those things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Today, the term man of God can be rightly applied to any church elder or pastor. But since this phrase, man of God, traditionally refers to prophets and pastors, does that mean it does not apply to the average Christian in the pew? Absolutely not. Every word in the Bible applies to every Christian. Every word in this verse applies to every Christian. It was not just given to pastors and people with seminary degrees. It was given to the new Christian and the dear old saint that's been walking with Jesus for 50 years. It was given to all Christians, including you. And it equips all Christians, including you. But how do we know that? We know that Scripture equips all Christians through a concept known as from the greater to the lesser. This concept is a type of argumentation that states that if something that is more complex is true, then a less complex version of it would also be true. It means that if the scripture can equip a pastor to shepherd his flock through all the trials and tribulations of life, then it is more than sufficient for all Christians. The scripture fully equips a pastor to preach a valley of dry bones and see the spiritually dead come to life. They equipped a pastor to counsel a couple whose marriage was destroyed by adultery and see come alive again through the ministry of reconciliation. They equipped a pastor to comfort a couple who just lost their infant son. They equipped a pastor to do all that and more. My friends, if the scriptures fully equips pastors, then they're more than sufficient to equip you to know God and to live a life that honors him. They fully equip you to minister to your brothers 
and sisters in Christ. Now you may be saying to yourself, that can't apply to me. I have not gone to Bible college. I have not gone to seminary. I don't know the original language. I have not taken any classes in hermeneutics. And I have not even read a single book on biblical counseling. How could the scriptures possibly apply to me? How could they equip me? My friends, you are fully equipped because you are a blood-bought child of God. You are a Christian. And like all Christians, you have the Holy Spirit to help you understand the words of God and apply it through what's known as illumination. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, 12-14, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the depths graciously given to us by God, for which the depths we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual depths with spiritual words. But natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually examined. But that does not mean that we do not have to put the hard work of studying the Scriptures and learning how to rightly apply them. Like Timothy, all Christians should be diligent to present themselves approved to God as workmen who need not be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Now let's move on to our next question. What is equipping him? We find our answer at the beginning of verse 16. All Scripture. At the time of this letter, all Scripture referred to the Old Testament and the few New Testament books that had been written. Today, it includes all 66 books of the Bible. It does not include the Apocrypha that was added to canon by the Roman Catholic Church after the Reformation or the Gnostic Gospels. But what exactly is Scripture? Is it just an ancient book full of spiritual truths? No, it is much more than that. It is the very Word of God. It is a revelation from God Himself. God reveals Himself to man in two ways. General and special revelation. General revelation is how God reveals Himself to us through His creation. When we look at the oceans, the mountains, the stars, or a sunset, we know there is a God who created it. So all men inherently know that there is a God, and that they are accountable to them, and have a basic sense of right and wrong. But this knowledge of God is incomplete. While it is enough to tell us there is a God, it is not enough to tell us who He is. It is enough to condemn us before God, but not enough to save us. The Apostle Paul taught this truth in Romans chapter 1, starting verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Since revelation cannot save us or tell us who God is, we need what is called Special revelation. Special revelation is how God has chosen to reveal himself to man. He's done it through the Bible, angelic visitations, and his prophets. But today, God only speaks to us through the Bible. That means he is not giving us new, fallible, or infallible revelation. We should not be listening for that still, small voice of God. He only speaks to us through his word and through his son. According to Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4, God, having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, spoke to us in his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power, who, having accomplished cleansing for our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he was inherited a much more excellent name than they. It is only through special revelation or the proclamation of it 
that we can come to know God and be saved. If it was not for special revelation, we would have no true relationship with God. But how did God reveal the Bible to its writers? Verse 16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed means Scripture was inspired by God. But when theologians talk about inspiration, they don't mean the same thing that a painter does when he says he was inspired by a sunset. This concept of inspiration means that God, through the Holy Spirit, used men to write the Scriptures. Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20-21, to 21, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men, being moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. When God moved men to write the Scriptures, He did not take over their bodies and make them brainlessly write down what He said. He worked through them, used their own unique personalities and styles to give us the Bible. John MacArthur explains inspiration this way. As those godly men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, he superintended their words and used them to produce the scriptures. As a sailing ship is carried along by the wind to reach its final destination, so the human authors of scripture were moved by the Spirit of God to communicate exactly what he desired. In that process, the Spirit filled their minds, souls, and hearts with divine truth mingling it, it sovereignly and supernaturally with their own unique styles, vocabularies, and experiences, and guiding them to produce a perfect, inerrant result. Therefore, we can rightly say that Scripture has a human and a divine author. And because Scripture is God-breathed, there are four very important applications. First, the Bible is inerrant, or free from all error. That means that everything the Bible says is true. Everything that it says happened, actually happened. And that would include all those things that seem impossible. Like Moses parting the Red Sea in Exodus 14. A donkey talking in Numbers 22. That would include the truth that God created the world in six literal 24-hour days and not over billions of years. When modern science appears to contradict the Bible, it is science that is wrong, not the Bible. Since science is constantly changing, we can take comfort in knowing that God's Word doesn't. Second, the Bible is infallible, which means incapable of error. Since God is omniscient or all-knowing, there's not even a possibility that He got something wrong or that the men misunderstood God when he inspired them to write the scriptures. A perfect God gave us his perfect word. Third, the Bible is authoritative. The Bible is not authoritative because the Pope or some denomination declared that you should believe in them. But where does it get its authority? Chapter 1, paragraph 4 of our confession states, The authority of the Holy Scriptures obligates belief in them. This authority does not depend on the testimony of any person or church, but on God, the author alone, who is truth itself. Therefore, the scriptures are to be received because they are the word of God. As Bible-believing Christians, we submit ourselves to the authority of the Bible over the traditions and opinions of man. This means that the scripture is the ultimate authority in our life, church, and religious practice. This concept is known as sola scriptura. According to chapter 1, paragraph 10 of her confession, the supreme judge for deciding all religious controversies and for evaluating all decrees of of counselors, opinions of ancient writers, human teachings, and individual interpretations, and in whom's judgment we are to rest, is nothing but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit In this scripture, our faith finds its final word. That does not mean that we don't use various creeds and confessions, but we must recognize that they are subservient to scripture. And since God's word is authoritative, it means we must obey every word of it. We're living a time where society is embracing things as good and pure, 
which the Bible calls sin. It doesn't matter what society says about anything. What matters is what does the Bible say. If the Bible says it's right, then it's right regardless of what society says. And if the Bible calls it sin, it's sin regardless of what society says. Unlike the constantly changing standard society, the Bible is consistent. And what a blessing it is that we have God's unchanging standards in the Bible. Can you just imagine how terrifying it would be if God changed his standards as quickly and as often as society changed theirs? Fourth, the Bible is sufficient. That means the Bible contains everything we need to have a proper understanding of who God is, who we are, and what God expects from us. Some have argued the Bible can't be sufficient because it doesn't address everything. It doesn't have to tell you how to change a tire, how to smoke a rack of ribs, or even how to drive from Cleveland to Toledo. The Bible doesn't address those things. That's true. But it never claims to be sufficient for things like that. The Bible is 100% sufficient for the things it addresses, which is all things pertaining to life and godliness. And that encompasses much more than you think. In 2 Peter 1, verses 2 to 3, Peter wrote, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. That means the Bible is sufficient to help us in our daily lives. It is sufficient to help you deal with things that the world calls mental illness, such as depression and anxiety. The world may attempt to address those issues, but God is giving us a resource that's much better than anything the world has to offer. He gave us the Bible. Now, it's not just certain passages of Scripture that you corrupt the man of God, but all Scripture. All Scripture means every verse in the Bible is important and was inspired by God. And he gave us each and every one of those for a reason. This would include all the parts we skip over or the, the parts of the Bible that kill you read through the Bible in a year plan. Such as the end, what seems like endless genealogies and the dis- detailed description of Aaron's priestly garments. While those things like the genealogies may seem unimportant, we should not skip over them because God put them there for a reason. One of those things is to show how he was faithful to raise up his Messiah through the line of David. All scripture includes both the Old and the New Testament. Contrary to what popular preachers like Andy Stanley says, we should not unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. As Christians, we must have a solid understanding of the Old Testament. It's not an option. Many foundational theological concepts that are essential for faith were introduced or explained in the Old Testament. Without it, we would not have a proper understanding of the New Testament, and we would miss so much of what it teaches. Sidney Greedis has said, the New Testament is filled with many other images and concepts of whose meanings we cannot know without the Old Testament. Think, for example, of such concepts as God, the kingdom of God, salvation, prophet, priest, king, atonement, law, faith, hope, love, Christ, son of man, good shepherd, and servant of God. All scripture means the words of Jesus in red in your New Testament are not more important than the ones in black. There is a movement within some Christian circles known as red-letter Christianity. This movement believes that the words in black are less authoritative and in a sense, inferior to the words in red. And what they're referring to is the, some Bibles have the words of Jesus in red in their Bible. Red-letter Christians often pit various passages of Scripture against each other and claim there are contradictions between what Jesus taught and what the other biblical writers, especially Paul, teaches. My friends, you cannot pit the words of Jesus against the words of Paul. Their teachings complement each other perfectly. There are no contradictions. Red-letter Christians argue that since Jesus never directly mentioned things like abortion and homosexuality, 
we should not be dogmatic about them. Instead, we should focus primarily on feeding the poor. But their hermeneutic quickly falls apart since they put so much of their attention on teaching and enforcing things that Jesus himself did not mention, such as global warming and foreign aid. Their view of scripture is turned into a weird mixture where some words of God are authoritative and others are not. As a result, their movement falls into theological liberalism and the preaching of justification by faith alone takes a back seat. All scripture means that we cannot be cafeteria Christians. We don't get to pick and choose which parts of the Bible we believe and which parts we don't believe. Which parts we obey and which, which parts we don't obey. The Bible is made up of 66 books on the Bible, but that does not mean we take a take it and leave it approach. Each and every book, every chapter, every verse was given to us by God. They were giving us so we may come to know Him and learn what He commands of us. We need the whole counsel of God, not just bits and pieces, not just the bits and pieces that make us feel good. And all Scripture means we should have the same view of Scripture that Jesus did. James Montgomery Boyce stated, We are to believe and follow Christ in all things, including His words about Scripture. And this means that Scripture is to be for us what it was for Him the unique, authoritative, and errant Word of God, and not merely a human testimony to Christ. However, carefully guided and persevered, I'm sorry, preserved by God, if the Bible is anything less to, the, less to us, then we are not fully Christ's disciples. As you can see, Jesus did not view the Scriptures as a holy version of Aesop's fables, or just a book on spiritual lessons. He saw it as the very Word of God, and so should we. He saw Adam and Eve as two people that really existed, and so should we. He saw the story of Jonah as something that really happened, and we should see it the same way. But there's one other thing about Scripture that needs to be addressed. It is something we often forget, and it is the important lesson that Jesus taught his disciples on the road to Emmaus. In Luke 24, starting verse 25, Jesus said, O foolish men, and so to heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. My friends, all scripture points to Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus can be found on every page. Starting the very first verse of Genesis to the last verse in Revelation, we see God's unfolding plan of salvation from the creation of the world to the fall to the final restoration of the new heavens on the new earth. And this amazing meta-narrative weaves its way through the entire Bible. My friends, you'll be amazed how much the Bible comes alive in your hands once you start following that scarlet thread throughout it. And that leads us to our third question. What is he being equipped for? We find our answer in verse 17. For every good work. The good work the Apostle Paul is referring to is living a life that honors God and helping others do the same. It involves killing sin in our lives and helping others kill sin in their lives. This good work is impossible to do on our own. We need the Holy Spirit working with us through the Bible to do it. But how does Scripture enable us or equip us to do this good work? In verse 16, Paul said, All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Paul began by informing us that all Scripture is profitable. He was not talking about a financial gain or how to make a good investment. The Greek word translated as profitable means able to meet all demands. So in essence, Paul is saying all scripture is God-breathed and is able to meet all the demands necessary for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, have him thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, we do not need anything else. The Bible is enough. J. Adams has said, our problem is not that we do not have 
what we need in the Bible, but that we do not have enough of the Bible in us, which we need. So what about you? How much Bible do you have in you? One thing I tell you for sure, you need more than the two hours you get on a Sunday morning. You guys are blessed that you have a shepherd that gives you a feast every Sunday morning, but it is not enough. You need to be in God's word every day, and it's not legalistic to say that. Now, did you notice the four things that the Apostle Paul mentioned? Teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness are the steps involved in biblical change. Change that helps transform us into the likeness of Christ. And Scripture plays a fundamental role in each of those steps. Now, let's break down each of those so you can see how Scripture equips us for every good work. First, all Scripture is profitable for teaching. The Apostle Paul is not teaching, it's not talking about teaching a whole bunch of facts so he can win a Bible trivia contest. He, ta- he is talking about teaching theology and all things pertaining to life and godliness. Theology is simply the study of God. It is through theology that we come to know who God is and what we are commanded to believe. It is through theology that we grow to love God more and learn more about Him. It is through theology that we learn how we're supposed to live and what God expects of us. It is through theology that we learn how to discern true from false teachers. And what a blessing it is that God is giving His scriptures to learn theology and the privilege of teaching it to others. Let's not forget that teaching is also a major component of the Great Commission that Jesus gave to all Christians. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Second, all scripture is profitable for reproof. Reproof means to convict, admonish, or express disapproval. It show, the Bible shows us how we have sinned against our great and holy God. It exposes the secret sins that we have hidden from others and try to justify in our hearts. Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verse 12 and 13 states, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the visions of soul and, spi- of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, and all things that are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We do not just read the Bible. The Bible reads us. What a blessing it is that God is giving us a book that exposes our hearts and convicts us of sin. Thankfully, when we do sin, the Bible doesn't leave us in a state of guilt and shame, in a state of broken fellowship with God. Third, Scripture is profitable for correction. If we're, if, if we're not in Christ, the Scripture calls us to repentance so we can be saved. In 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul reminds us that the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith within Christ, Christ Jesus. If we are in Christ, the Scriptures calls us to repentance and help us return to godly living. My friends, we do not just need the scriptures to convict us of sin when we are lost. We need them every day to help expose and kill sin in our lives to help us become more like Jesus. Fourth, all scripture is profitable for training in righteousness. Training in righteousness is simply sanctification. Sanctification is the process in how the Holy Spirit progressively transforms us into the likeness of Christ. And the Bible is a major tool that the Holy Spirit uses to sanctify us. As Christians, we are called to be students of the Bible, but we're also called to live the Bible. And as humans, we tend to be creatures of habit. We often become so enslaved to both good and sinful habit patterns. But when we have those sinful habit patterns, we need to break or put off those things and replace them with good things. This process is what is taught in Ephesians chapter 4 and is one of the ways that we can be trained in righteousness. 
This idea of training or disciplining ourselves is why the Apostle Paul gave the following charge to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with the worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For godly discipline is only for little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life, but also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we are fixated our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. This charge that Paul gave Timothy does not only apply to him, it applies to all Christians, including you. So let me ask you, are you training yourself in righteousness? And this leads us to our final question. Why does it matter? Everything we talked about this morning is not something for seminarians and theologians to write papers about and debate. Everything we looked at matters and has several practical applications to your life. But due to time, we'll only look at five of them. First, it matters because if the Bible can be wrong about some things, then it can be wrong about everything. If the Bible can be wrong, we can have no confidence that it was right about how we can be saved from our sins. However, God is giving us a Bible that is inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and sufficient in everything pertaining to life and godliness. And that includes the path to salvation. It is only through God's revealed word in the Bible that we learn this path. So what is this path to salvation? This path of salvation is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But before we talk about the good news, we have to talk about the bad news. That bad news is that each and every one of us have sinned against the holy God. We have broken each and every one of his ten commandments. And as a result, he will do what is right and will condemn us to hell for eternity. And in hell, he will pour his wrath out on us. But that's not his desire for us. Because he gave us a way of, to, to escape this wrath to come. And that is the good news. And that way of escape is through his son, Jesus Christ. That if we repent of our sins, we means to turn from our sins and trust in Christ alone, he will save us from our sins, pay that punishment for us, and we can have everlasting life in heaven. And then second, your view of the Bible will affect how you evangelize and do apologetics. When you look at the evangelical methods of many Christians and churches, it's filled with worldly things. It's almost like they, need to, they feel like they need to dress God up to make him look better. It's, it's as if they're saying that the word of God is not enough. So they add on a whole bunch of bells and whistles to attract the world and hardly ever get to the preaching of the gospel. What they fail to realize is that what you attract them with, you need to keep them with. My friends, the Bible is clear that the only way that men are to be saved is by the preaching and teaching of God's word. And this tr- truth is taught throughout Scripture, including Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 5. For Moses writes about the unrighteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things shall live. For the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will go up to heaven? That is, bring Christ down. <coughs> or who will go down into the abyss? That is, bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That you confess with your mouth that Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with that heart a person believes, leading to righteousness, and with that mouth he confesses, leading to salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes upon him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then would they call on him in whom they had not believed? How would they believe in him who they have not heard? And how would they hear without a preacher? And how would they preach unless they are sent? 
Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim the good news of good things. However, they did not heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So when it comes to evangelism, we do not need to dress up the word of God to make it more attractive. Or we do not need need to think of new ways to spin it to make it work better. We just need to faithfully proclaim the truth to a lost and dying world and watch the Holy Spirit do the work. The old paths are the right paths. Your view of the Bible also affects how you do apologetics. The ultimate of go apologetics is not to win arguments. It's not to win debates. It's not to show people how smart you are. It's not even to defend the faith. That is a goal of apologetics, but it's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal of apologetics is a clear path to proclaim the gospel. No one is saved by clever arguments or even a dynamic presentation of facts and evidences. And since the ultimate goal of apologetics is the proclamation of the gospel, the most important weapon that you have is the sword of the spirit or the Bible. My friends, when you do an apologetics, you should never surrender the truth of the scriptures in order to find some mythical, neutral ground with an unbeliever. It doesn't make any sense to abandon your most powerful weapon, a weapon that the Holy Spirit can use to raise the spiritually dead to life. Bodhi Bachman uses a great analogy to drive this point home. He talks about two knights that are preparing to battle each other in a sword fight. They're both suited up in their armor, the shields, the helmets, and they both have swords. Just before the battle begins, the one knight points to the other and says, Wait a second, I don't believe in your sword. What is he supposed to do? Should he start talking about how, the, how it was forged? Talking about how it was grinded, give sharp edges? How they mounted the hilt onto the blade? To prove that it exists? No, the best way he can prove to the other knight the sword exists is to stab him with it. And that is kind of the analogy to show us the best way to prove the truth of the gospel is to use the gospel and use the Bible. Not to surrender it to an unbeliever. So my friends, your view of the Bible would determine how you do apologetics. It would determine if you rely on the wisdom of God or the wisdom of man. Third, having a proper view of the Bible prevents us from giving undue authority to anything else. As particular Baptists, we strongly hold to Sola Scriptura. But believing Sola Scriptura does not mean it's just us sitting under a tree with our Bibles. We understand the importance of the ancient creeds and confessions. We understand how these creeds and confessions are guardrails to keep us from drifting to heresy. Even a quick survey of Baptist history will reveal that once we move away from those creeds and confessions, we fall into heresy very quickly. We understand that creeds and confessions promote unity in the church and consistent teaching from its leaders. We know the importance of standing on the shoulders of men who came before us so we don't have to fight the same theological battles over and over again. Many people on Twitter need to be reminded of that. However, if we don't have the right to view the Bible, we can slowly let creeds and confessions take authority over the Bible. Like all of you, I hold to the 1689 Confession. But why do I hold to it? Why do you hold to it? Is it because of the men who wrote it? Or the godly men who signed it? Is it because it's 350 years old? No, we see this authoritative because we believe it is the best summary of the teachings of Scripture. And since the summary, we believe it is a summary of what Scripture teaches, we can use it as a guide to determine what is taught and hold our leaders accountable to it. We should hold on to a confession tightly unless we find an area that goes against Scripture. While it is the best summary we have, we cannot forget that it's not inerrant and it's not infallible. Let me tell you a quick story that will serve an example of a pastor doing confessionalism wrong, but at the same time, it's a story of the church doing it right. Wow, we're going to show our age. But about 11, 12 years ago, Rachel and I were looking for a church. We visited a confessional church, and the associate, one of the, one of the pastors invited us over for dinner to learn more about the church. While we were talking to him about it, I asked the question about their view of creation. 
I was so very new and just coming to terms with what confessionalism was. So what should have been a very simple question of, yeah, we hold to a literal six-day creation. His answer was, let me see what the confession says about that. He flips through the confession, goes, oh, it says a span of six days. But since the confession does not explain what a day is, we'd be open to any interpretation. So that was pretty much one of the reasons we decided to pass on that church. About two years later, the church we ended up going to, some people started visiting the church who were leaving that church. And the reason they were leaving that church is this individual believed in what's called the framework theory of creation. And he wanted to teach in that church, and they wouldn't let him teach since he was teaching on biblical views of creation, which was also against their confession. Turns out that he and that pastor that told us that, that pastor was just removed from the church for teaching that view of creation. So in this sense, we saw the danger of a pastor who was holding and making his judgment what is right and what is taught based upon the confession instead of scripture. But we saw the church doing it right, where they said, this is what the, church, the Bible teaches about creation. This is what our church believes about creation. You came on and said, this is what you're going to teach. So they had him count, and since he was not teaching that, they removed them. So that should be a lesson to us of what happens when we put our confessions as the authoritative over scripture. We start letting worldly wisdoms and things like the framework theory of creation be a guiding principle. And the other lesson we can learn is how a church can use it as a guide and principle to hold people accountable. But before I move on to the next point, I want to make sure that you're not misunderstanding me. I'm not attacking confessionalism or rejecting the necessity of a church holding to it. I'm not denying that the confession faith has any authority. What I'm saying is as confessional Christians, we must be careful that we don't put the confession over Scripture in any way. Fourth, the Word of God regulates how we are to worship God. If we worship God in a way that He does not desire, we will sin against Him by offering strange fire. There are ways to worship God that are acceptable to Him, according to chapter 22, paragraph 1 of our confession. But the acceptable way to worship the true God is instituted by Him and is delimited by His own revealed will. Thus, He may not be worshipped according to human interpretation or inventions, or the suggestions of Satan, nor through any visible representations, nor in any way that is not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. We don't have time to fully expand on the regular principle of worship this morning, but we can briefly note that we are to worship God through the preaching and teaching of His Word, the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and the administration of the ordinances. If we worship God in a way that He prescribes, He will be glorified and honored. But if we don't, we'll be led astray by our own imaginations and preferences. Our church services will become irreverent and filled with skits and crazy antics. We just have to look at some of the megachurches who fill their services with outrageous things, like dancing stormtroopers, true story, and rock bands playing secular music. One notable church, every Sunday morning church service, they open every year, they choose a new or, well, it's not new. They're usually some from the 70s rock songs to entertain the crowd before their Sunday morning service, including songs like Highway to Hell by ACDC. If we truly love God, we would desire to worship Him in the way that He commands, in His word instead of how we think it should be done. And fifth, the Bible teaches us how to raise our kids in the fear and admiration of, the, of God. Being a parent, it is a great blessing. And it's also a great responsibility. It's not a question of if you disciple your children. The question is how. Our parents, are you discipling your children in the ways of the world? Or are you discipling them to make them disciples of Christ? At the end of the day, it doesn't matter if your kid graduates from the best college, gets one of the highest paying jobs, if he does not know Christ. Hell is full of people who are very obsessed by worldly standards, but don't know Christ. My friends, the world is pulling your children in one direction, and that direction only leads to destruction. As a parent, you need to pull them in the other direction, a direction that only leads to a narrow gate. Turn off the TV and open up your Bible. Follow the wisdom of Proverbs 22.6, which states, Train up a child in the way that he should go. 
and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. From the word of God, teach them who God is and how they sin against him. Teach them about Jesus Christ and how salvation can only be found in him. Teach your children all that God has commanded and teach them how to apply those teachings to their lives. Teach them that the Bible is not just a bunch of fun bedtime stories. If you do all that, you're giving them something that will help guide them throughout their lives. Use the precious time that God is giving you with your children to give them firm foundation in Bible knowledge, systematic theology, and practical theology. Give them a strong foundation in Christ. If you do, God may bless your efforts and you may see your children become children of God. In conclusion, I pray that we see the Bible for what it is. A precious gift from God. A book like no other book. A book that contains the words of life. A book that God uses to make us more like Jesus Christ. A book that contains the very words of God himself. A book so precious that many of our Christian forefathers gave their lives so we can read it today. Now we just need to take it up and read it. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, we just come before you today. And I just pray that we take the privileges in, in this country have given us, where we just have access to so much Christian literature and especially the Bible without fear of persecution. So many of us just have dozens of Bibles in our homes, and we often neglect just to pick it up and read. I pray you just motivate us just to be in your word, to love it, to study it, and cherish it. And I just pray that you transform us to be more like your son. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Yeah.